I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 65th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that Jesus was willing to accept crucifixion because his death on the cross would fulfill the plan of God to save the souls of all those that believe in him. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on October 11th. Our lesson for the morning is the 65th episode in our sermon series on the last year of the life of Christ. And our text is in the 22nd verse of the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke, in which the Bible says, For the third time Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your work. So Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and with, that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last lesson, I made the point that people only reject Jesus and, by extension, God's plan for two reasons. The first reason that people reject Jesus is ignorance. Now, ignorance can be rectified by study because there is sufficient available evidence to prove the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ and the content of the Bible beyond the shadow of any reasonable doubt. But the second reason that people reject Jesus is that people have their own plans and don't want to live by God's plan. They are envious of God's control of the universe and want to be able to make their own decisions and rule their own lives. Now, the Jewish leadership brought Jesus to Pilate for execution because they thought that they could stop Jesus's infringement on their rule of the religious landscape of Judaism if they could just get rid of him. But they couldn't tell Pilate their true reasoning for wanting Jesus executed because they were sure that Pilate would not execute an innocent man for such a trivial reason. But every Jewish objection to the ministry of Jesus Christ was trivial. Now, trivia is defined as matters or things that are very unimportant, inconsequential, or non-essential. And in the mid-1980s, a board game, Trivial Pursuit, became a popular pastime in the United States. The game consisted of sets of cards containing questions on various topics, generally historical or scientific events, and the point of the game was to answer the questions correctly, which would allow you to move your game piece around the board. 
and the first player to answer enough questions correctly to complete a trip around the board won the game. The ability to play trivial pursuit well is based upon the knowledge of trivia, that being unimportant, inconsequential, or non-essential facts. Now, it is important to be able to distinguish between trivia and essential facts. Rick, Paul's friend who has visited us several times, was conversing with a friend of his about using the Bible as a guidepost for living, particularly as it pertained to marriage. Rick's friend responded that the Bible wasn't really a good source of information as the teachings of the Bible were just the opinions of some men rather than being the Word of God. Now, it is a fact that each book of the Bible had a human author, but Rick's friend's assertion assumes that God did not inspire the authors of the books of the Bible to write that which he wanted written, which is an assumption that is neither proven nor true. And as a matter of fact, that assumption is diametrically opposed to that which the Bible says about itself. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, which says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible itself testifies that the men that wrote it were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, which is the same intellectual entity whom Jesus told the disciples was going to come to them to empower them to preach the gospel. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And not only does the Bible claim itself to be inspired by God the Holy Spirit, but the writers of the Bible provide proof for their inspiration by the fulfillment of the prophecies that they have made. The Bible repeatedly makes detailed predictions of things that are about to happen in the future, even long after the deaths of the human authors, and the predictions made by these human prophets repeatedly come to pass. Dr. Norman Giesler, the former professor of religion at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the former president of the Dallas Theological Seminary, and president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary writes in his book, A General Introduction to the Bible, according to Deuteronomy 18, a prophet was false if he made predictions that were never fulfilled. No unconditional prophecy of the Bible about events to the present day has gone unfulfilled. Hundreds of predictions, some of them given hundreds of years in advance, have been literally fulfilled. The time in Daniel 9, the city in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and the nature in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 of Jesus Christ's birth were foretold in the Old Testament as were dozens of other things about his life, death, and resurrection. See Isaiah chapter 53. 
numerous other prophecies have been fulfilled, including the destruction of Edom in Obadiah 1, the curse on Babylon in Isaiah 13, the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel 26, and the destruction of Nineveh in Nahum 1 through 3, and the return of the Israel to the promised land in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Other books claim divine inspiration, such as their Quran, the Book of Mormon, and parts of the Hindu Veda, but none of these books contain predictive prophecy. As a result, fulfilled prophecy is a strong indication of the unique divine authority of the Bible. Now this sermon is not the venue in which we can explore these predictions in detail, but suffice it to say that the information to verify Dr. Giesler's statement is easily available in his book, A General Introduction to the Bible, which I would recommend to anyone that is interested in pursuing it further. The fact that the books of the Bible have human authors is that which I would denote as trivia, because the Bible itself and the prophecy in it testify that the inspiration for the Bible is from God. And my point is that trivial explanations are often the hiding place of people that do not want to deal with the reality of their situation. People turn to trivial facts to justify their lack of desire to do that which they should. The Jewish leaders refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ because his ministry began in Nazareth in Galilee and they were hung up on the trivia that the Christ would be from Bethlehem in Judea. John chapter 7, verse 40 through 42 and 50 through 52 records, Then many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, Jesus is the prophet. Others said, Jesus is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Now Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now Nicodemus rightly said that the Jewish leadership should examine that which Jesus was doing. But Jesus' miracles, healing the sick and raising the dead, had no effect on the Jewish leaders because they were hung up on the trivia that Jesus had come from Galilee rather than from Bethlehem. And even as they arrested Jesus, the Jewish leaders completely ignored the incident of the healing of Malchus, the servant of the high priest that went with the men to arrest Jesus. Luke chapter 22 verse 49 through 54 records, then those around Jesus, then when those around Jesus saw what was going to happen, that Jesus was going to be arrested, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And Jesus touched Malchus's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. And having arrested him, they led Jesus and brought him into the high priest's house. So Jesus displayed his access to the healing power of God to the Jewish leadership constantly from the time that he first came on the scene to the time that they arrested him. But Jesus' ability to wield the power of God made no difference to the Jews because they were hung up on trivia. The Jews were so blinded by their knowledge of the past that they would not look at the present standing before their eyes. Now, our history is often an important thing to know, but we need to recognize that when we look at life through the lens of history, our interpretation of the correlation of history to current events may not actually be correct. That's why Pilate's question in our text, the A portion of Luke 23 and 22, is so important. For the third time, Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? Now, a couple of weeks ago after our service, we had a discussion about marriage. And I have found through both study and experience, that people often bring trivia from their past into their present marital relationships. Our thoughts about the environment in which we were born and raised exerts powerful formative influences over us, and we often find ourselves trying to either recreate our birth families or fix problems that we experienced in our birth families as we endeavor to create our adult families. And in some cases, emulating our birth families may be healthy. But if our birth family experiences were dysfunctional, we rather need to emulate the plan of God for marriage instead of referring back to, referring back to or recreating the mistakes of the past. The plan of God is not that we recreate, relive, or recycle the sins of the past but that we move past the pain of our experiences to develop loving, godly relationships. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that sins could be forgiven. And once a sin is forgiven, it is to be removed, as Psalm 103, uh, chapter 103, verse 12 teaches, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the relevant fact is, however, that the way we were raised is part of our trivia. As our past may not mirror our present experiences and may be unimportant, inconsequential, or non-essential to our current experiences as adults. Unfortunately, we have the tendency to see our formative experiences as normal and even more harmfully universal. When we look at our spouses, we may not see them for whom they are, but rather through the misshapen lens with which we see those individuals with whom we were involved during our formative years. And just as the Jewish leadership condemned the Christ for the trivial fact that he was from the region of Galilee rather than the prophesied region of Bethlehem, we may condemn those with whom we come into contact because of our memory of a negative influence in our past, rather than on something that the person has actually done to us. I've often discouraged my son from getting involved with people 
that had certain negative experiences during their formative years, especially if they show their inability to put the past in the past and experience the present as the present. Especially in our culture, baggage from the past is a major contributor to a lack of stability to have a, a lack of ability rather to have a successful relationship in the present. Now I was in a meeting this week on, on discouraging the use of alcohol among teens. The moderator of the meeting was giving instructions about the proper way to approach the children and in her presentation she used the word authoritative when referring to the way to approach the subject. A female attendee raised her hand to object and told the moderator that she didn't particularly like the word authoritative when referring to the interaction of parents with their children, stating that she rather thought that parents should reason with their children rather than give them direct instructions. It came to light that she didn't like being told what she could and could not do by her parents, and she came to the conclusion that her personal experience should be universal reality. But Proverbs 22, chapter 22, verse 6, makes it clear that the responsibility of parents is to train children. It tells us, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs chapter 23, 23 verse 13 and 14, further clarifies that parents are to be authoritative, even to the point of physical correction of their children, as it says, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. And this passage of scripture specifies that control corporal punishment is not abuse, but rather that control corporal punishment to correct bad behavior is the desired norm. The Bible specifies a rod as the implement of punishment. Now, a rod is a round piece of wood that has a small area of impact and is designed to break if it is used with too much force. A rod is designed to create pain without injury, as the amount of force required to seriously injure someone with a rod would break the rod. But the point is that the rod is intended to re reinforce the authority of the parent. The fact that many people find uncomfortable is that authority figures are authoritative, meaning that authority figures use their authority to restrict our activities. For instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And commandments are designed to be authoritative. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus also told the disciples that even he was under authority in John chapter 15, verse 10, which says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus equates love for God with keeping God's commandments. God is the ultimate authority figure. 
And last week in our discussion, we spent a great deal of time on the greatest commandment, Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 to 37, which says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But as we have seen from the lections in John, to love God means to keep his commandments. To love God means to acknowledge his authority. To love God is to refuse to hide from his authority by focusing on the trivia of our personal past. To love God is to reject the subjective conclusions to which we have come by our experiences in favor of accepting the objective truth of the word of God. You cannot love God and be a moral free agent, deciding right and wrong as you go along. You cannot love God while making up commandments for yourself based upon your own subjective experiences and conclusions. Remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 which says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. But none of the things that they saw in the garden were actually there. The tree was not good for food, but poison. Once God pronounced sentence on them, they did not enjoy looking at the fruit that caused them to be kicked out of the garden. And after eating the fruit, their wisdom was not increased as they stupidly hid from God as though fig leaves would keep him from finding them. Subjective conclusion is our real problem. Subjective conclusions lead us to envy and, co and to covet God's rule of the universe, which manifests as our desire to redefine our reality by our own conclusions rather than by the word of God. Over and over, we get life wrong because we reject that which God says, either because of ignorance or because we have our own plan and don't want to live by God's plan. We allow trivia from the past to overtake us and remake our thinking and then find ourselves unwilling to follow the plan of God. We saw this in the garden. We see this in the trial of Jesus. The story of the Roman trial of Jesus shows us that Pilate and the Jews were unwilling to follow the plan of God. The Jews were hung up on Jesus' origins, but Pilate knew that their objections to Jesus were trivial. But Pilate became hung up himself because the Jews were so persistently unreasonable about their desire to have Jesus crucified. And even though Pilate had the authority to free Jesus, Pilate became in intimidated when the Jews made the false accusation that if Pilate let Jesus go, Pilate was not Caesar's friend. Jesus, however, was willing to follow the plan of God. Although he had committed no sin, and although his crucifixion would be the greatest miscarriage of justice of all times, Jesus was willing to accept crucifixion because his death on the cross would fulfill the plan of God to save the souls of all of us who believe in him. 
We can see the thinking of the Jewish leaders of Pilate and of Jesus from the lection that records the end of his Roman trial from Jesus Christ, the greatest life, which says, then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought this man Jesus to me on the charge of stirring up subversion. Yet on examining him, I find no substance to your accusation. Neither did Herod, because he sent him back to us. You can see he's done nothing deserving death. Now, you have a custom directing me to release one man to you at Passover. So I'll punish Jesus and then release him. At the feast, the governor's custom was to release one prisoner to the people, whomever they chose. And at that time, a notable prisoner named Barabbas was being held along with a few of his fellow insurgents. He was a robber who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. When the crowds had gathered and noisily asked Pilate, asked Pilate to act on the custom, Pilate answered, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? He knew that the chief priest had handed Jesus over because, because of envy. And as he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Don't do anything to Jesus, that just man. On account of him, I have suffered many things today in a dream. But the chief priests and elders stirred up the crowds to ask Pilate to release Barabbas to them instead and to execute Jesus. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, the governor said. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They replied, Barabbas. They all shouted together, not this man. Get rid of Jesus and give us Barabbas. Because Pilate wanted to release Jesus, he said to them once more, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Messiah, whom you call king of the Jews? Again they all shouted, Let him be crucified. They continued crying out, crucify, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate said to him, said to them, why, what evil has he done? I don't find he's done anything deserving death. So after punishing him, I'll release him. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers took thorns, wove them into a crown and placed it on his head. They put a purple garment on him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and kept punching him with their fists. Pilate then came out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you, so you will know I find him not guilty. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple garment. Look at the man, Pilate said to them. And when the chief priests and officers saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. You take Jesus and crucify him yourself, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. We have a law, the Jews answered, and by our law he ought to die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this claim, he grew even more afraid. He returned to the judgment hall and said to Jesus, Where do you come from? Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to talk to me, Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to crucify you or to release you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all over me unless it had been given to you from above. Because of this, 
the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. These words prompted Pilate to continue seeking ways to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone claiming to be the king is speaking against Caesar. Hearing this, Pilate brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, or in the Jewish language, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, about six in the morning. He said to the Jews, Look at your king! But they shouted, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! They were insistent and shouted all the more, demanding loudly that he be crucified. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? We have no king, the chief priest answered, except Caesar. So when Pilate saw he couldn't dissuade them, but instead a riot was in the making, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of the blood of Jesus, this righteous man. You will be witnesses of this fact. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Their voices and those of the chief priests won out. So Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, ordered that they should get what they demanded. He released Barabbas to them, the man they had asked for, who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, but he gave in to their demands about Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus and led him away to the court called the Praetorium. There they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, then clothed him in purple, and put a crimson cloak on him. And they put on his head the crown of thorns they had made and placed the reed in his white hand, reed in his right hand. They continued mocking him, bowing in homage and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed from him, from him and kept beating him on the head. And when they finished ridiculing Jesus, the soldiers stripped him of the cloak and the purple garments and gave him his own clothing. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, Jesus Christ's life was about the development of relationships. Jesus was not an ascetic prophet living in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey, as was John the Baptist, but Jesus lived among the people of the Palestine and touched their lives. Jesus went to the wedding ceremonies, and when the host ran out of wine, Jesus changed water into wine for the merriment of the well-wishers. Jesus made himself available to the prostitutes who came to Jesus and repented their immoralities as they washed his feet in their tears. Jesus attended the feast of the tax collectors who came to Jesus and repented with the pledge to give their stolen profits back to the people from whom they stole them. Jesus fraternized with the fishermen who repented, throwing down their nets and their foul language to become preachers of the gospel. Jesus walked among the blind, the deaf, the lame, the demon-possessed, the sick, those that had leprosy, and those that had palsy, and he restored them to perfect health. Jesus developed loving relationships with all in Jerusalem that acknowledged their need for a Savior, 
but all Jesus's love was lost on those that were self-righteous and focused on trivia and self-aggrandizement that brought Jesus before the Roman procurator and bullied Pilate into crucifying Jesus. John 15 and 25 records, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. The chronicling of the antisocial behavior of the Jewish leadership in the crucifixion of Jesus is recorded in the scripture as a warning to us about our own behavior. As we contemplate the thinking of the Jewish leaders and of Pilate, let us think of our own lives and our own relationships. Think of all the people that you hate, dislike, or with whom you have an interpersonal conflict. Is the reason for your dislike of them valid, or are you emulating the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees? Has the person that you dislike actually intentionally done something to you worthy of your dislike? Or is your reason for disliking them trivial based upon something that happened in your past? Are you being influenced to dislike them because of a prophecy that you were given that you may have misunderstood or misapplied as the Jews did? Are you being influenced to treat them unfairly by an angry mob as was Pilate? Do you have a cause or do you hate them even as the Jewish leaders hated Jesus? But Jesus gives us a command about our interpersonal relationships. In John 13, 13, 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This commandment applies particularly in our familial situations. Paul in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 through 5 tells Titus to instruct those of us that have reached the age of being able to counsel, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And Paul also instructs, instructs us, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 28, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So wives ought to love their husbands, and husbands ought to love their wives. Familial relationships exist so that we can model love for our children and perpetuate the commandment of Christ to love one another into the next generation. Parents are to love one another so that they can model healthy relationships for their children, not provide a negative example to lead their children into dysfunction. We ought to follow the commandment of God and love one another, not stand as part of the mob and shout, crucify, crucify. 
God did not send Jesus into the world to get even with us for our many sins. But as John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So let us not recrucify Jesus by being condemnatory to one another, emulating the irrational hatred of the Jewish leaders, but let us rather worship God by loving one another as Jesus has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson. And we ask you, Lord, that you would clear our minds of the trivia of the past and help us to evaluate the situations of the present based upon the activities of those that are acting in them with us. Help us, Lord, to look at the circumstance, not to look at a prophecy or a prediction of how someone might tell us how some people will react, but help us not be confused by, uh, by labels and by ideas that others have about the general way people behave. And let us look at the specific way that those with whom we come into contact behave toward us and let us love one another as you have loved us. Help us, Lord, to not be like that mob that, ordered, that asked for the crucifixion of Jesus to become irrational and to be driven by things said by others. But help us to be objective and help us to do that which you would have us to do and help us to be loving toward our brothers and our sisters. Help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that in the house today. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.